of us have buttons. Buttons inside of us that when somebody pushes, an emotion comes out, uh, a reaction comes out. And I wonder this morning if you could think with me for a second about what pushes your anxiety button. What can someone say? What can somebody do? Uh, what is it that pushes that button inside of you while nerves and anxiousness begin to, to wash over you? I, I will go first, since I've had time to think about this. Uh, and, and for me, what, what pushes my anxiety button is if I get an email or a text message and somebody says, we need to talk. And, and, and the worst is when they don't tell you what they need to talk about. Uh, and I can tell you that I, I've been serving in uh, church ministry for 15 years, and typically people don't send you texts or write you emails that say, we need to talk to tell you how amazing you are. I mean, if those were the messages I got, I'd go, yeah, man, I'm super excited. It would not be my anxiety button, it'd be my, my excitement button. But if somebody sends me a message that says, hey, I need to talk to you, or we need to talk, like my blood pressure, I can just feel it. I don't need my, my watch to go off to tell me to breathe. I just start feeling anxious. And, and the reason why I, I start here today is we're going to look at a book today that begins with a moment like that. The writer of the prophet that we're going to look at today, it's almost as if he pushes that button in the people to give them a heads up and a warning about what's coming their way. Now, this is your first Sunday at Cornerstone. Welcome. So glad you're with us today. If you're watching online for the first time, thanks for being with us. We're wrapping up a 12-week journey today through the Minor Prophets. So if you're here, I just want to say bravo. You, you made it. You, you worked your way through one of the most understudied, overlooked, and difficult passages of scripture. I asked me this morning, say, hey, has this been a, a heavy lift for you? And, it, and I'll be honest, it, it has been a heavy lift. There are passages of scripture that are really easy to preach. This is not one of those. And some of these weeks, we've had to cover 14 chapters in, in one message. And, 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 and this has been some hard content. I mean, I will talk about later, but nobody wakes up and has a family and says, you know, when my kids grow up, I want them to be prophets. You know, that's a, it's a hard and difficult calling, and I'm just grateful for the way that you've leaned in, you've learned, the feedback you've given. So excited for what God's done in our church this summer. If you've missed any of these messages, you can go on our website, prescottcornerstone.com, and get caught up on any of the messages on the prophets. Now, next Sunday, we're going to make a pretty radical turn. We're going to leave the Old Testament behind, and we're going to jump back into the New Testament. And we're going to begin a new series looking at some of the, the teachings and the direction of Jesus. Now, during the pandemic, our family watched a lot more TV than normal. I'm sure your family maybe is the same. And one of the shows that our family loved watching is called The Mandalorian. It's a Star Wars show on Disney+. Plus, and, and one of the main characters in the show, he has a phrase that he uses over and over. He says, this is the way. This is the way. And we've started repeating it in our house. We would give our kids directions. And we're like, kids, this is the way. This is, this is what we do. And so we, we use this phrase enough that it just became part of our, our kind of vernacular and our mindset. And so as I was reading through the Gospels, I just saw so many places where Jesus teaches his disciples things and shows us things. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, this is the way. So next Sunday, we're going to start a new series, and it's going to be called This is the Way. 
So you don't have to like Star Wars. I know there's some Star Wars haters out there. We love you. This is a church for all people. So you're welcome here. You don't have to watch the show or know the show, but we're going to look at it for the next four weeks, starting next Sunday. What does it mean when Jesus says to us, this is the way, this is the way you're to walk in, and we're going to do our best to walk in that. So we didn't encourage you to be with us next Sunday. But today we're wrapping up the Minor Prophets, and we're going to talk about uh, the man that my wife calls the only Italian prophet, Malachi. Uh, his name is actually Malachi, and I want to give you a little bit of background on Malachi. Malachi's name means my messenger. And that's his identity. He's going to bring a message to the people of God as the messenger of God. And so he lives up to his name. His book really gives us no biographical information on him at all. We don't learn anything about where he's from or what he did before this, what his family was like, anything about him. All we know is what he shares with us in this book, in his message. We do know uh, that it's very possible he was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if you were with us earlier, so we did a whole series on Nehemiah. And Ezra was a priest. Nehemiah was a government official. And God used them to help the people return to their land in Judah, in Jerusalem, and begin rebuilding the land. And because of some themes in Malachi, many Bible scholars believe that he was dealing with and addressing some of the same things that Ezra and Nehemiah did, uh, who also have books and that for them in the Bible that they were uh, involved in the creation of. And so it's very possible they were, they were contemporaries. They were happening at the same time. But uh, the beginning of Malachi begins with a, kind of a punch. Like I mentioned, it could kind of hit the button. And so the, I study each week, and, and when we read together from Scripture, I, I read from a translation called the Christian Standard Bible. It really balances well accuracy of translation from Hebrew and Greek and a really understandable English translation. And so when I got ready to, to study Malachi, I started with verse 1 where it says, A pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, which seems pretty innocuous. Like he's here to make a pronouncement. He has a message from God. But I started doing some research because I had read something that I, I, I wanted to make sure that was actually true. And that word pronouncement, like a lot of words in a lot of languages, has a range of meaning. It can mean kind of a variety of things. And one of the words or you know, definitions in the range of meaning for the word that we get the word pronouncement from, it also can be translated a different way, which I think kind of gives us a different shade on this verse. And Malachi 1.1 in the New King James Version says the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And I think that maybe is a better translation of that second word here, because what Malachi is going to say to the people, it's going to be a burden for them to hear it. And to be honest, it was a burden for Malachi to carry it as the messenger. You know, there's sometimes in our lives where we feel like we need to say something to somebody and it's a burden on our heart until we finally open our mouths. You know, you feel like in a relationship, man, I need to tell them this. But man, I'm not sure how they're going to react. And so I'm not sure if I can say it. And I, and I feel like a wuss. And so I'm trying to get the courage up to actually say it to them. And, and this is the, the reality of the prophets. Nobody grows up and wants to be a prophet. And if you do, you should get a therapist because there's something off inside of you. Because to be a prophet means you're choosing a calling where no one's going to like you. In fact, they're probably going to want to get rid of you. 
You're going to tell people things they don't want to hear. And I love how Eugene Peterson describes the task of a prophet. He says, the task of a prophet is not to smooth things over, but to make things right. And what we're going to see today in Malachi is that he has this burden, this, this word from God to give them. And he's not concerned and everybody getting along and us having this giant kumbaya circle. No, he's concerned with making things right between this people and their God. And we're going to see that in the book of Malachi today. So here's my best attempt to summarize the book of Malachi and our big idea. When what we expected doesn't happen, we have an opportunity to trust who God is and obey anyway. I think this is the, a good summary of this four-chapter book that ends the Old Testament. And if you're taking notes, there's a couple blanks to fill in. When what we expect doesn't happen, and friends, that happens all the time in our lives. Again and again, life doesn't go the way that we plan. There's that old joke about if you want to make God smile, tell him your plan. And so because life doesn't often go the way that we plan, we're going to have an opportunity in those moments again and again to trust who God is and to obey him anyway. And what Malachi is going to do in his book is he's going to give the people three important reminders for life's unexpected turns. He's going to remind them of things that they have been taught, that they already knew, but they had lost sight of and they weren't living in light of. And I think the same thing is true for us. There's a lot of things that we've been taught. There's a lot of things we've been told that we know in the back of our heads, but they don't shape how we live every day. We've heard them, but we need to be reminded of them. And here's the first one. The things that God cares about are the things that we tend to downplay. The things that God cares about all too often are the things that we also tend to downplay. I told you that this is a burden that Malachi is going to bring to the people. And in fact, what he's going to do over the four chapters of Malachi is he's going to bring seven different warnings or rebukes to the people. And if you've got a copy of the handout here in the room, or you're watching online and you download it from our worship resources page, I want to walk you through these seven this morning because they kind of, leave, they kind of make the, the outline of the book. The book opens with Malachi talking to the people about God's love for them. Because the people had begun to question whether God actually loves them. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been through a season where you're like, man, I don't feel like God loves me. Because of what's happening around me, I don't feel like God loves me. And if you've experienced that, you know what often happens next. That, that when you don't necessarily feel like God loves you, it's hard to love God in return. This is... One of the reasons why both in the Old and the New Testament we're reminded that the greatest commandment is to love God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And then Jesus builds on that and says the second greatest commandment is like that and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And from the very beginning of the church, the challenge has been how do we continue to hold on and keep that love for God strong? In fact, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, begins with a letter to a church where God tells the church, hey, you've lost your first love. And when you lose that sense of love for God, everything else falls afterwards. And so he tells the people, God has loved you, and here is how he's loved you. And so I want to call you back to the love you have for God. 
The second warning or rebuke he brings them in chapters 1 and 2 is related to their worship. See, in that day, they worshiped in the temple. They brought sacrifices, animals that would be sacrificed to God. And, and it wasn't just the people who had begun to have worship problems. The priests, the leaders, had begun to have problems too. The people began to bring offerings to God that, that, were, that were in violation of the law. They literally were bringing the worst of their animals. You know, that animal that doesn't really walk right, you know, or that has that blind eye, you know, that one that's been sitting at the pound for six months that nobody wants. It was like, yeah, that works. We'll, we'll give that to God. It reminds me of an old story I, I heard about uh, the Butterball hotline. Did you know that at Thanksgiving that there is a hotline that Butterball runs to answer your questions? If you don't want to ask Google, you can ask Butterball. And so there's a woman who called Butterball one year. And she said, hey, I have a turkey and it's, it's been frozen. How long, you know, is it okay for it still to be eaten? And they said, well, how long has it been in your freezer? And she said, it's been in my freezer for 22 years. And the person at the other end of the hotline, they said, well, have you ever had like a power outage? Like where your, where your freezer defrosted and then it refroze? She's like, no, we've not had any power issues. It's been frozen solid for 22 years. And the woman who was on the call from Butterball, she's like, I mean, I guess technically it's okay, but I'm not really sure, ma'am, why you would want to eat a turkey that had been frozen for 22 years. And she's like, oh, no, it, it's not for me to eat. I'm going to give it to my church. And as the, as the son of a pastor and somebody who's been a pastor as well, I will just tell you that is all too common. Hey, this, this, this is kind of worn out of our house. We're upgrading, so we'll just give it to the church. Hey, I, I'm not going to give my best to the church or my best to God. I'll give him my leftovers. And in that day, this was literally happening with the sacrifices they were bringing to God. They weren't giving God the best. They were giving God what was left over. And, and Hosea, sorry, Malachi even says to them, he says, you wouldn't give this to the governor. You wouldn't give this to a friend, but you'll give this to God. And it was a reflection of the lack of worship and reverence they had for God. And the priests weren't helping any. They were accepting these things because, frankly, the way that the priest ate was through the sacrifices. So they weren't thinking about what was best for God. They were thinking about what was best for themselves. And Malachi calls them out for their compromise when it came to worship. Third, he calls them out for the, the, the lack of faithfulness in their marriages. Men were divorcing their wives to marry other women of local tribes to advance their financial agenda. There were people who were worshipers of God who were getting married to people who weren't worshipers of God, who were leading them to worship false gods and idols. And Malachi said, God called you to be faithful that when you made a vow to that person in the presence of God, God remembers your vows and he's holding you to them. And you're walking in infidelity. You're thinking about your bottom line rather than what's right before God. 
Fourth, he, he called them out when it came to hope. The, the people were, were complaining to God. We'll talk more about this in a little bit in the message. They were, they, were, they were whining to God. They were complaining to God, saying, hey, we do all these things, and yet you don't do your part, God. We keep your covenant, and yet we see other people who aren't keeping your ways prospering. What gives? And they, they weren't putting their hope in God. They were putting their hope in how they thought life would go. And life wasn't going the way they expected. And they were holding God accountable for that. And we'll talk more about that rebuke in a little bit. They also had a problem with giving. One of the most well-known passages in Malachi happens in Malachi 3, where Malachi says to the people, stop robbing God. The people say, how are we robbing you? And, and Malachi says, when you don't bring the full tithe into the storehouse, according to the Old Testament law, you were to give a tithe, which literally means 10%. 10% of your crops, 10% of your livestock, 10% of your income to the temple to provide for the priest and to advance worship. It was a sign of your trust and dependence on God who'd given you everything that you had. And he was calling out the people for neglecting this tithe. Things had gotten so bad in the temple that the priests had abandoned their work in the temple to go and work the fields to provide for themselves. Now, now as a church, we now live in light of the new covenant that Christ made that we celebrated last week in communion. We don't live in light of the old covenant. We, we interpret these Old Testament laws in light of what Christ says and the New Testament. And as followers of Jesus, this is one of the hard parts. How do we interpret these Old Testament laws in light of the New Covenant? And I could spend a whole series on this today, and I don't have time for that. I will just say this. I always find it interesting when people ask, should we still tithe today? Like, do I have to tithe? It reminds me of when I worked with high school students and we would talk about sex. And the question would be, hey, Scott, how much can I fool around before I start sinning? It's the wrong question. It's like saying, hey, how close can I get to touching the stove without getting burned? I think the question should be, how can I avoid getting burned entirely? The question is not how close can I get to sinning, but how close can I get to God? And we don't legislate a tithe here. I'm not ever going to ask you to bring your W-2 and then write down what you should give. We're not a church like that. There are churches that do that. We're not one of those. But I will just tell you, if the question you're asking is, how much do I have to give God? You're asking the wrong question. Because God always calls us to greater and greater generosity. Because once you realize all that God has done for you, you won't try to get off as light as possible. When your heart has been taken by all that he has given you, you will want to give. And so often what happens with tithing is it becomes about obligation, not gratitude. He also talks to them about, about serving. The people were angry that they were serving God and they weren't getting what they wanted out of it. You know, it's not a new idea to have a, a give and take view of God. God, I give you this and then you give me stuff in return. The idea of God as a vending machine is not a new idea. And for them, they were saying, hey, we're serving you, but you're not serving us. We're doing our part. What about your part? 
And we'll dive back into this one later. And then finally, he speaks to them about preparation. He speaks to them about the day of the Lord. Three weeks ago when I was on vacation, Tim Jacobs talked about the book of Nahum and the day of the Lord. That there is a day coming when God will return and judge and make all things right. And that day could be a really good day or it could be a really bad day for all of us. It could be a day of hope and it could be a day of despair. You say, Scott, how do we know what that's going to be? Well, it's really up to you. What are you going to do with what God has done for you? What are you going to do with what Jesus has done for you? If you put your faith and trust in him, it can be a glorious day. If you put your faith and trust in yourself, it could be a terrible day. At the end of the day, all of these questions, they, they begin to get at the heart and the motive behind how the people were living. And, and for me, as I was reading through Malachi, the question God kept bringing to me was, Scott, what's, what's consuming your energy and attention? What, what really matters to you? When I was growing up, people would say, who were pastors like I am now, they would say, hey, if, if you want to know what somebody values, look at their checkbook. Now, most of us these days don't carry a checkbook around. It's no longer an effective illustration. But if you want to know what somebody values... Look at their online bake statement and look at their social media. Look at the phone. See, what consumes our heart, our energy, our attention are the things that matter to us, that are important to us. There are motives. And for the people of Israel, they had allowed their energy and attention to become consumed with things that weren't aligned with God And so Malachi comes and he brings them this strong, strong warning. Now you understand why he had a burden at the beginning of the book. Second reminder that he gives them is that God is constantly revealing the motives behind our actions while inviting us to repentance. God is constantly revealing the motives behind our actions, calling us inviting us to repentance. If you have your Bible open, I want to encourage you to go to Malachi 2, 13 and 14. I mentioned we were going to come back to this. This is in the middle of the the section on unfaithfulness. In my Bible, the heading is Judah's marital unfaithfulness. And in Malachi 2, 13 and 14, this is what Malachi says. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears. This is in the temple during worship. With weeping and with groaning. Because God no longer respects your offerings. Or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask why? God, I I brought my offering. God, I came to temple for us to be like, I'm here on Sunday morning. I'm here in church. I brought my Bible. Why aren't you doing your part, God? And here's what Malachi says. Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. What what God is saying here through Malachi and Malachi 2 is God is not just concerned with what happened in the temple. He's concerned about their whole life. 
And they're saying, hey, I did the temple right, so God should be responding to me a certain way. And Malachi's saying, yeah, but I saw what happened when you weren't at the temple, and I care about that too. And what happens there in your marriage impacts what happens in your worship. For us, it would be, hey, I see what you do at work. I see what you say online. I see how you treat people all week. And if the one hour you show up here doesn't get you what you want, you find yourself groaning and weeping and crying out to God. Why? God doesn't ignore the other 167 hours. You're not in worship and just treat that one hour as if that's everything. And this same pattern plays out in other areas. It plays out when it comes to their faithfulness in their marriages. It comes and plays out when it comes to their worship, like we've talked about. It comes and plays out with how they love God or don't love God. It plays out with how they give to God. God has cared about the the entire picture. And he isn't just caring about their actions. What he's caring about is the motive behind their actions. I can tell you that, that sometimes in my own life and others that I've known, they've given to God that percentage, whether it's 5 or 10 or 15. And I'm not sure God was necessarily honored. Because with the other 85, 90, 95%, they dishonored God. Just because you tithe doesn't mean the rest is yours. At the end of the day, it's all God's. He doesn't just care about what you give to his mission and his church. He cares about all of it. When it comes to our hope for the future, he says to the people, he says, you were serving me, you were following me, you were abiding by the laws, but not for the right reasons. Your motives were corrupt. Now, I think it's really easy standing here today over 2,000 years removed from this moment and look at these people and go, man, they had really wicked hearts. They had really corrupt motives. You know, they just were terrible people. Like, I can't believe they would do that. But let's be honest. None of us have completely pure motives. None of us. This side of heaven, all of us have a mixture of motives. Pick any topic, pick any arena of life. We all have impure motives. What that means is that while we're living this life, our lives should be marked by a relentless repentance. While we're living, our repentance over those impure motives should be relentless. This is why I think our our culture struggles when we call them to repentance Because we find repentance so absent in our own lives. Repent is not the message that our world needs that doesn't know Christ. Repentance is the word and the need of every person breathing on planet earth right now. Because we all have something to repent of. So you didn't just repent when you became a follower of Jesus and whoo, that's done. That would only be true if you were done with impure motives. If you were done with doing even good things for the wrong reasons. And I want to remind you what repentance means because it's a word that I think has been used and abused. Repentance is four parts. First, it's awareness. You have to know 
that there's something that needs to be repented of before you can either even start the process. And often, because we all have blind spots and humans are all gifted at self-deception, it often takes another person pointing out what's in your blind spot. So repentance starts with awareness. It, it then goes to acknowledgement. It isn't enough to know, yeah, I've got an impure motive. You need to acknowledge it, grieve over it, apologize for it, name it. And then you need to turn. Because repentance literally means a turning away. It's like doing a U-turn when you realize you're going in the wrong direction. It's not enough to go, man, I'm, I'm not going where I sh- should be going and just keep driving. You've got to actually turn. And then you have to move in a new direction. Dave Richards, will you come up here right now? This is... I love, I love just calling people out. So I just want to warn you, the closer you get to the front, you know, you're not going to be in a splash zone, but you might be in the stage zone. So, uh, so Dave's a little hobbling today. He had a fun weekend, it looks like. So, uh, so I just want to give you like a picture of uh, repentance. So Dave, I'm just guessing from Amber that Dave has something to repent of. Can I get a nod out of that? Got a big nod out of that. Um, sorry about that, buddy. Um, so, so Dave has a blind spot. And so I'm going to pretend I'm Amber, and I'm going to tell you what that blind spot is, okay? So I tell you what that is, you now kind of acknowledge it, okay? okay? And you kind of come into, this is the direction you're coming in life. You're coming towards me. I give you that, okay? So we're going to pretend this sheet of paper is going to be your, you're going to write something down. You're going to say something. You're going to give a prayer. You're going to acknowledge it. But that's not enough. It's not enough to say, hey, I'm sorry. Like if there's somebody in your family or in your life, and they go, hey, Hey, you know, you got a blind spot. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry about that. And nothing happens. That doesn't change anything. No, so you got to have the awareness, have the acknowledgement, and now you got to turn around. And then you got to walk away. You got to go in a different direction. When Dave was coming to me, he was coming this way. But then because I gave him the awareness and he made the acknowledgement and then he turned and then he walked away, that's actually repentance. You can go back to your seat. And the reason why I want to give you that picture, thank you for that. So Amber, this is your permission to tell him his blind spots all day today. You have my permission. Um, but the reason I want to give that picture is that I think sometimes we think we're done when we acknowledge it. We think we're done when we feel bad. We think we're done when that burden comes and you go, oh, I need to change that. No, you're not done with repenting until you turn and go in a different direction. And, and all of us, because... God is revealing our motives. This should be the pattern of our lives all the time. There's always something that we're in the middle of repenting over. And if you can't remember the last time you repented, today's the day. It's time to start again. Here's a third reminder. The third reminder is the challenge of any relationship is trust and courage. The challenge of any relationship, either vertically with God or horizontally with others, the challenge of every relationship is trust and courage. If you have your Bible still open, turn to Malachi 3. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 14. Here's what Malachi says. You have said, he's basically repeating the people's words to them. You have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements 
and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies. People were saying, hey, we did all the right things. We served you. It's useless, God. So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. The people were so cynical about what they had seen that they said, hey, we actually envy the evil people. We actually admire the arrogant people because they're getting what we thought we were going to get by doing it God's way and serving him. And after telling the people this, Malachi writes, at that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. Because their hearts were pricked, they were, they were challenged, they were convicted. Hearing their own words repeated back to them, they realized, hey, we're in the wrong. The Lord took notice and he listened to them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies. My own possession on the day I am preparing. That's that day of the Lord we talked about. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the wicked and the righteous, between the one who serves God and the one who doesn't serve him. All of us are going to have a moment like this, where what we thought was going to happen is not going to happen. We thought we were going to do things the right way. We did our best. We tried our hardest, and yet, we still went through adversity. I parented my kids. I brought them to church. I I read the Bible to them. And now that they're in college, they're doing their own thing. I've worked really hard at my job, and I put in extra hours, and when I had to stay late, I stayed late, and... And I didn't get that promotion. In fact, I got a demotion or I, I got let go. I, I loved that spouse. I cared for that spouse. I, I served that spouse. And they told me they didn't love me anymore. And they got a lawyer. See, that's the place the people of Israel are in. They're in a place of disillusionment. And what they thought serving God was going to lead to has left them asking why. And that's what adversity does. Adversity raises the question, why is this happening? God, why did you allow this? God, why did this come my way? God, why is this going on? Why, why, why? It's a very human question. I would say maybe it's a universal question. But here's the thing. Why is a question that leaves us stuck. Because we're not promised this side of heaven we're going to get all the answers to all our why questions. And I think even if we did understand why, it wouldn't give us the power to change the circumstances. Because some news I need to break to you today. You're not God. You're not all-powerful. You're not all-knowing. You can't change the past, and you can't control the future. So even if you understood why, it wouldn't give you the power to change. C.S. 
The adversity asks the question, why is this happening? But faith pivots the question to who is God in this moment? Because that's where you end up, whether you know it or not. When you begin to ask the question, why? And sometimes when you end up stuck there and I end up stuck there, we begin to believe things about who God is that are not who God is. We begin in our anger, our despair, our emotion to, to question the character of God. To doubt the character of God as revealed in Scripture. And, and if you want to know the question that gets you unstuck, it's who is God in this? Yeah, this stuff happened, and yeah, you can't change it, but, but who is God while you, you're walking through it? Who is God as he's walking with you? And what you'll discover is adversity puts a spotlight on trust. I'm in a spotlight right now, right up here, so you can see me. And adversity is that spotlight on trust. You want to know how, you, how much you trust somebody? Go through adversity with them. You want to know how you're doing in your marriage? Go through adversity. You, you want to know what people are really like? Then put them through a pandemic followed by social unrest, followed by racial unrest, followed by a semi-volatile political campaign, and then play it all out on Facebook. And you go, man, why are we just struggling in our relationships? Because adversity puts a spotlight on trust or the lack thereof. This is why I said in the beginning, the big idea that when what we expected doesn't happen, we have an opportunity to trust who God is and obey him anyway. Because often when we don't get what we want, we think God is no longer trustworthy and we stop following him. God, things didn't turn out the way I thought they would, so I can't follow you anymore. I can't trust you anymore. I got to look to myself. I got to trust in myself. And I just want to remind you that, that we choose to trust God because of his character, not our limited understanding in the moment. All of us have this limited view. We can only see like this. We can only see in the moment a limited perspective. All of us have experiences where in our lives, we look in the past, we had a moment where we had blinders and then we lived a little bit and we went, oh, I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea things that were at play. I thought that was the best thing ever. It turns out it was the worst thing ever. I thought that was the worst thing ever. And oh my gosh, I'm so glad that happened to me. And if you have at least one of those moments, you need to know that if in that moment, based upon your limited understanding, you were only trusting God based upon what you could see, you failed to see what he was doing. See, we trust who God is in terms of his character because we can't always see what he's doing. And because we don't understand what he's doing, we have to trust who he is. And what God is saying to his people in the book of Malachi, if I could drill it down to four words, it's these four words. Will you trust me? After 12 weeks in the Minor Prophets, I think this may be the best summary. God to his people saying, will you trust Even when you don't understand what's happening, 
even when it wasn't what you expected, even when it doesn't make sense to you, even when it isn't on your terms, even when you feel like doing something differently, will you trust me? Now, if you're feeling a little bit of a pulse race right now or discomfort, I want to remind you how you spell vulnerability. T-R-U-S-T. You can't trust without vulnerability. And that's why a lot of us have trust problems. Because we don't feel safe and we feel scared. Not just with other people. If I can be so bold, some of us feel unsafe and scared with God. We're not sure we can trust God. And that's why you see what you see in this book in their worship, in their giving, in their serving, in their preparation, in their marriages, in their jobs, in everything. And this is where it comes. You will only go so far with God as you trust him. And everything comes back to trust. And when life doesn't turn out the way that you expected, it will, you're going to have an opportunity to answer this question. Will you trust me? And how God defines trust is obedience. It's taking the next step he's shown you to take even when you don't know the outcome. And that's why the last 18 months for a lot of us have been so hard. Because we don't know the future we're not sure we can trust and God is calling us to just take the next step. Will you trust me? And speaking of next steps, we've got a couple for you today. Here's the first one. I want to invite you this week to spend some time reading our Italian friend, Malachi. It's not a long read. It's a page and a half in my Bible. But I want to encourage you to read this final book. Even if you haven't read all of them, we put a reading guide out back in May. I don't presume that everybody read every week because even I missed a week. Just a couple, to be honest. Um, But I'd encourage you to read through Malachi this week. And when you do, number two, I want you to ask a question. As you're reading, I want you to ask God, God, where have I been downplaying what matters to you? God, as I read through this, I see seven different things that your people did back then where they were downplaying things that were really important to you. So God, where in my life am I downplaying things that are actually really important to you? Where are things important to you and they're unimportant to me? And ask God to to show those things to you. Number three, I want to encourage you to examine the motives behind your actions and repent of compromised motives. I want to encourage you to channel your inner three-year-old all week long. You should ask a question. Why? You got to love three-year-olds. They just ask why about everything. Why, 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 why? I want you to be a three-year-old this week. Not in every way, just this one way, okay? But ask yourself, hey, why did I do that? 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 And when God reveals a compromised motive, and I know you got one somewhere, I want you to repent of that. And then finally, number four, I want you to choose to trust who God is in the midst of the unexpected. And again, trust is simply, God, I don't know what you're doing, 
but I'm going to take the next step. God, I don't understand why you allowed this to happen, but I'm going to take the next step. God, I don't get this, but I'm going to choose to be vulnerable with you and be courageous and follow you. This week, I was texting with our friend TJ, and uh, we were talking about how to end the service, and we were actually bantering about some songs, and, and there was a song that came to mind for me. It's a song that uh, I can remember as a teenager. There was a church in England that had some Malachi problems in it. They had some worship problems. They had begun worshiping in ways that didn't honor God, and so their worship leader, their pastor, they put a moratorium. They stopped singing in the church. They stopped worshiping in the church. They said, if we're going to do it wrong and dishonor God, we shouldn't do it at all. It was a powerful moment in that season in that church. And as they began to get right the things that had gone wrong, God began birthing a song in that church. And so in 1995, a song was written called The Heart of Worship. Song talks about getting back to the heart and the motive and the reason behind it. And so today, TJ, Sierra are going to lead us as we close the service in this song. I encourage you to stand or sit, whatever you feel God leading you to do, but I encourage you to meditate on these words. That God cares about our hearts. Things are going to go wrong that we didn't plan, things that we didn't expect, and we're going to have an opportunity before God to trust Him and for Him to work on our hearts and to come back to what this relationship with God really is all about. Hope these words speak to you today like they've been speaking to me all week long.